San Diego's talk radio leader, 760 KFMB presents It's Your Money and Your Life. For the next hour, Richard Musio and Joe Vecchio will educate and inform you on matters related to your financial future, your life, and your leisure. Now, with It's Your Money and Your Life, here are Richard and Joe. All right, everybody. My name is Joe Vecchio, your co-host, announcer, and producer, coming to you from KFMB Studios with 50,000 watts of power. We're heard not just in San Diego County, but Orange County, L.A. County, up the coast of Seattle on a good night, down to Cabo, out to the desert. If you download the app for 760 KFMB or tune in radio, you can hear this show as it airs. And all these podcasts are commercial-free on iymoney.com. Now time to introduce the main man of the hour. He's a CPA extraordinaire, accomplished marathon runner, best-selling author, lecturer, philanthropist, and a family office expert advising several high net worth families. His name is Richard Musio. Richard, good evening. How are you tonight? I'm great, Joe. Had a great holiday weekend last weekend. Yes. I was out at the Vista Strawberry Fest and the Vista Strawberry Fest 10K and 5K. I ran the 10K. Really? Of course, the Movie Feet Before You Eat Foundation is the founder of that running event. And they had plenty of strawberries Tons afterward? of strawberries. Excellent. But it's, it's a really tough 10K to run because you take off and you're not even a mile out. And you, run, you run by Willie's Waffles, mm-hmm. and then you go by Anna's Donuts, and then by Chow Cupcakes. By about a mile and a half, you're like, why am I going to go run up this huge hill at Bringle Terrace when I can just stop and eat all this junk food? Because <laughs> <laughs> it just smells so good. And of course, now you've got the, uh, the San Diego. I still call it the Del Mar Fair, don't you? I call it the Del Mar Fair, but it's not. It's the San Diego, San Diego Fair. Fair. Yeah. And, of course, the May Gray has been with us on and off here, uh, kind of weird weather, huh? But I guess is what we should expect this time of year, huh? Yeah, it is. Yeah, just so. I don't like the name San Diego Fair. I don't either. Because my theory <laughs> is if they're going to call it that, they should move it down there so I can quit sitting in traffic because I live up here. Yeah, to where? Liberty Station? Where could they move it? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Anywhere but where it is so I don't have to sit in traffic. Hey, anymore. Qualcomm's got a lot of land around there. You know? <laughs> no, nothing to do there in the fall. I wonder how the. I wonder if there's a, it's 166 acres. That's about the same as the Del Mar Fair, right? Or the oh, I think the Qualcomm site's way bigger. Really? Oh, I think it is. You know what? Hey. Hey. The heck San with San Diego soccer. Fair. Yes. Yeah. Maybe put a racetrack there. Yeah. How about that? that there, there's an idea. I like that. Yeah. Anyway, got a really great show tonight because these guys have been with us from day one, right? They are esteemed sponsors. Probably the premier CPA firm in the county, wouldn't you say? And maybe uh, maybe this side of the Mississippi? Uh, or oh, I, you mean west of the Mississippi? Okay, I'll go for that. I said this side. Yeah, this side. I'm like, what side <laughs> am I on? <laughs> we'll get a linguist in here for the next guest, exactly. Richard. Or... or Geography expert. Yeah, that'd be which good. Which I'm not. That'd be good. Anyway, why don't you introduce these guys? You've known them. Uh, well, I'll introduce them. You the introduce firm. them. It's the, it's the premier firm in the county, folks, for CPA and accounting. It's, it's Polito and Epic. So, Paul Polito and Don Epic. Paul, how are you? Welcome to the show. Great, Joe. Thank you. And uh, Don Epic, great to see you as well. You too, Joe. Excellent, excellent. So, Richard, where'd you run into these guys in your life? Well, let's see. I joined. Let's see. Here's the history. I joined... Robert Carter's accounting firm in Vista back in 1989, and I guess Paul Polito, you merged your firm in the next year, right? Actually, it was November of 89. So it was November of 89. So we mm. hit the ground running as of January 1 all together. So and, the point being, these And then folks Paul are... and I, we don't really like working. We just like making money, so we had to hire some people. Aha. Uh-huh. So that's where Don Epic came in. Ah. <laughs> it was about 20, how many years ago, Don? September 20... of 95. Yeah, 22 years ago. How about that? We hired Don to basically ha- what ultimately became the, the audit department, so to speak, the financial statements. Got you. Up in Vista. Now you guys, let's see, and then I, I sold the firm, I think in 02, 
end of 02. End of 02, yeah. So I'm no longer an owner. So I'm mm-hmm. just doing full disclosure. It used to be. You, you guys still owe me money? I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> I'm Sorry, teasing. Richard. <laughs> just So teasing. just for the benefit of any new listeners. I give list- you free water. Yeah. I, I just, yes, so, so for new listeners out there, I know, Richard, you went to USD, got your accounting degree. Well, I'm not the only one who went to USD. Yeah. So I want to just go around the room yeah. and just refresh everybody uh, you know, in the listening audience who may not have heard of the, these gents when they were on the first time. So, uh, Paul, you were where'd you get your degree? Loyola University of Los Angeles. Gotcha. Almost as good as USD. It's in the same conference. And then, uh, and how about you, Don? Yeah, I graduated USD in uh, 1985. Okay, a lot of USD grads uh, on this show, Richard, as you know. Yeah, we tend to specialize in USD and UCSD. We're not so big on San Diego State, but we've had some of the Aztecs on too. Now, as far as the CPA profession, uh, I guess it's a, what is it—a three-day exam still, something like that. Not necessarily. <laughs> no? They, they take it in pieces now. Oh, really? Yeah. They don't take it all at once? Most don't, do not. Huh. Don, do you think you could still pass it? Because I know I could. I'm just no, kidding. I could not. <laughs> that was a lot of work. I now, wouldn't they, even attempt it. <laughs> now, don't, <laughs> now, don't they require continuing education in the profession, right? Yes. 80 hours every two years. And we typically do closer to 120 or more. Huh. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, everybody at your firm does, but... Is that where the LG Experience comes into? Do they get some... Con- no, these guys are separate and distinct, but if oh, they okay. come to the LG Experience event, which I'll mention when we do sponsors, that 24 hours and some of the best stuff out there mm-hmm. in terms of leading experts. But um, the cool thing is, is you can also do presenting and get credit for hours in continuing education as a CPA, which I always highly encourage professionals to get out and to present to other professionals because I think you guys would agree. It makes sure that you're at the top of your game when mm-hmm. you're standing in front of a hundred of your um, peers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and if somebody knows more than you, you can embarrass yourself really quickly. <laughs> so it really helps you to be well-prepared. Well, here's an interesting thought. When you gents first started practicing accounting, there were no computers uh, to speak of in use, right, at the time? Certainly the case when I got in it. Yeah, me yeah. too. Don would be different. I, yeah, what year did you start, Paul? I started in 1972. Yeah, I was 79. Yeah. The first couple of years, we did tax returns by hand. So the point being, has it helped or, or hurt? I, I guess it's obviously saved a lot of paper, but uh, how do you think it's impacted the, the industry, uh, per se, good and bad? The good is it's uh, uh, more efficient. The bad is uh, a lot of times people go on automatic and rely on the program too much. Mm. So we're talking about the one that... Yeah, what, what Paul means by that is you'll have somebody doing a tax return and they plug the numbers in and they come out with some bizarre result and they didn't go into it with an expectation of what they thought the correct answer was. Mm. And, and so, yeah, you, you come up with this thing where you're like, that makes no sense. Oh, but the computer told me it was right. Mm. Uh, so back in the days when you had to do stuff by hand. Well, this is a funny story. And Don, of course, you came in at about the same time we were really getting geared up with the computers. We used to do financial statements on a typewriter, and if there was something that you had to fix, we got the whiteout out uh-huh. and we do it. So yeah. you were really inclined not to make mistakes. And you, Paul, you probably remember this, and God forbid if you would use outside processing services to do, generate tax returns, mm-hmm. God forbid if you had to pay for a rerun because you made a mistake. Huh. I mean, yeah, the first firm that I worked at, uh, we had a cutoff of April 10th before... Uh, and then if we had any changes, we would make them with a whiteout. With the whiteout, if yeah. necessary. Well, I'll tell you, the worst was when we were doing uh, public company audits without computers, and we had 15-page trial balances oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. with <laughs> consolidations, and yeah. they had to add up. And trying to find those errors, it, 
2 o'clock in the morning when it's, <laughs> you're trying to get it out the next day. Oh it's pretty God. rough. So that's where computers have really helped. Yeah. Now, you guys do a lot of public company uh, accounting? We do no public company accounting. Yeah, right. because that's where you get into the restatements and the re-restate. Re, re Today, I mean, you're not supposed to do those that often, but I think a lot of people make a career out of it, right? A lot of, a lot of companies, um, at least in the, in the recent past, I had, I had asked our, our friend Bill about that. You know about those, right? Yeah, Richard? I know about those. Yeah. Not supposed to do them that often, but... Uh, <laughs> Don's smiling over here. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so, you guys, you guys, tell us about your um, client demographic because it's an interesting one. Well, mostly, um, uh, well, all privately held companies, some family-owned companies, and they uh, run the gamut that you'd find in San Diego County, though we do have some outside of San Diego County. But manufacturers, distributors, uh, we have some uh, very high-tech uh, online type uh, companies, startups, mm. um, agriculture, scientific, agriculture. Uh, card room. Have. We have a niche of card room casinos that we audit. Yeah, oh. those are cool. Yes, really. And yeah, most uh, people think it's the the tribes only. Yes, no, but that's are, not. They're grandfathered under California law. Correct. These casinos. Hey, I recently interviewed uh, J W August, and remember we had him on the show. Yeah. But there was a. You know those rooms where the, the palm reading industry in this town? <laughs> I mean, it is run by a gypsy family. Did you guys know this? No, yes. Yeah, yeah, there's a major gypsy family, and I guess to this, I guess they got, he, he got them in a little bit of trouble at one time, but they're, uh, they uh, still, are, still are in control of that. So maybe that, that'd be a, uh, an interesting audit, huh? <laughs> <laughs> they, they would already tell us the answer. <laughs> <laughs> they probably don't have audits. <laughs> Probably they're not, not regulated, are they? I don't know. I guess they have to file taxes, don't they? Or Maybe they're they board of consumer Boy, we're going to get in. All right. Well, uh, we'll do a little palm reading during this commercial break. We'll be back with Polito and Epic uh, right after this. Hang on. All right. We're back with the morning team of Polito and Epic here in KFMB. Welcome back, gentlemen. Had some interesting conversation at the break there about taxation and volunteerism, but we won't get into that. No, we won't. <laughs> so, gentlemen, most people think of CPA firms, their, their, shall we say, service offerings are doing tax returns and preparing financial statements. But firms can do a lot, lot more, and I know you guys do a lot more than that. In fact, I think your tagline is beyond the balance sheet, right? Correct. Because I've stolen that before in speech. <laughs> but I give you credit. That could be so, a book title for I guys. Know, beyond the balance sheet. <laughs> like trademark that? that? Yeah. That'll be a big seller Registry. in the business section, I think. <laughs> what do you guys mean by that, beyond the balance sheet? Because, again, most, most of our listeners think that you, they would just hire you to crank out history, a tax return or a financial statement. We do a lot of business consulting, uh, soup to nuts, basically, forming a business, uh, how to structure it, uh, how to run it, how to run it profitably, profitably mm -hmm. how to uh, enhance the value of the enterprise, and ultimately how to sell it. So that's all forward-looking stuff. Absolutely. Well, that sure sets you apart from your typical accounting firm, right? Because most of them just do the nuts and bolts accounting, right? Correct. Huh. Interesting. Was that your forte? Did you take off on that, uh, Paul? Or? Okay. Yes. All right. Well, you were doing that back when we met. Correct. Yeah, a long time ago, 28 years ago. Well, that's... that's uh, that I got tired of those trial balances. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't blame you. I, I used to have to do, when I was a staff accountant, when I entered the profession, timesheets, which are a waste of time. But back then, everybody charged based on time. There was no computer program for it, so I had to take everybody's timesheets. We had a spreadsheet that was six feet wide. 
where you had to put everybody's time in and then extend it by columns and tights. That's what I did my first year. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, well let's, let's give, give these guys a chance to brag a little bit. Yeah. Uh, give us an example of uh, like a client who was with you for, for day one when they first started the business or early on and um, some of the pitfalls you helped them avoid and some of the success they've managed to recognize as a result of, of, your, of your expertise. What do you say? Well, I, uh, one comes to mind. A client came to me back in 1981 uh, when he needed financial statements to get an SBA loan. Hmm. Uh, that's, that early, was a, that's early on. <laughs> right. And they just had tax returns up to that point. Mm-hmm. And so as we often find, uh, all of the accounting and bookkeeping is uh, just for preparing tax returns. So they're using a tax uh, accelerated depreciation for tax, but they don't have the, the accounting uh, depreciation that would be generally accepted under generally accepted accounting principles. Mm-hmm. So we clean that stuff up. Um, what, kind typically, of biz- what kind of business, by the way? This was a, a, a company that owned a couple of mines, a couple uh-huh. of mining companies. I know who you mean. Keep going. Right. right. That's a good story. <laughs> and so, so over the years, uh, this guy's been trying to sell these mines. And we've probably been through three or four iterations where big companies uh, came looking at these mines and um, particularly the the uh, public companies, they're so ad uh, risk adverse that we probably never should have talked to them because <laughs> uh, this guy has a very profitable operation, but they're unpatented mining claims, which means technically that the Bureau of Land Management could take them over and and uh, the mining claims could turn out to be worthless. Hmm. But. He's been operating since 1981, continues to operate. He would love to sell it, and uh, we've talked to another company recently. Uh, but, the, but it's a hard business to sell. Mm-hmm. And um, in, in this case, uh, we do uh, financial statements in accordance with uh, generally accepted accounting principles. But, of course, we're very aggressive um, on the tax side. And use things like uh, percentage depletion allowance and things like that to minimize taxes. Um, a number of other uh, uh, companies where we've uh, helped them structure right from the beginning, with the ultimate sale in mind, mm. and that's a that's a conversation that should happen every time a company started. It doesn't always happen, but it should happen. Mm-hmm. Like what to do, you know? Well, especially, I, especially if there's partners the, the involved, way, right? Well, the way that you form it. Uh, ultimately, uh, if, uh, for example, there's a little known, uh, statute called 1202 where you can actually exempt, uh, up to 10 million, well, 10 million or 10 times your investment in your, uh, small business stock. If you hold the stock for five years, but Paul, well, can, I, can I back up? There, sure. There's a tremendous prejudice <clears throat> in the accounting profession to encourage business startups to be S corporations. Correct. Which isn't necessarily incorrect, but in many cases, it's done without any thought to what you're saying about what is the ultimate plan here. Exactly. And it, it, you can never... In other words, there's an aversion to C-Corps. Right. And you right. can never take advantage of that, uh, 1202, if you start out as an S-Corp. So right. what I tell people to do is start out as an LLC while you're burning through your own capital mm-hmm. so you can take the losses right. and then convert to a C-Corp when you're ready to start raising funding because you're the people that are um, investing are going to want to take advantage of 1202. Mm-hmm. And uh, that way you get the best of both worlds. You, you end up with two holding periods, the, the original holding period when you started the company 
but the five years starts the day that you um, um, form the C corporation. Hmm. But but a lot of folks just knee jerk it over to S corp in part because their advisors like the convenience of an S corp. And their their orientation is all tax. Right, and that gets me to another point. A lot of companies, with regards to their ultimate decision to sell, they've been working towards that without getting rid of what I call their income tax bias. And so then you have to explain to a potential buyer all of these adjustments and addbacks to get to cash flow or what we call EBITDA. And it doesn't always look good when, you're in, when you put yourself in that position to say, well, that's not really what I made, which on the tax return, I really made this much more, and here's 93 reasons why. And, and I'm case, supposed to trust everything else you tell me. Right. right. <laughs> so there's, there's usually a huge holdback, right. a big bucket of um, uh, contingency money to, to cover uh, things that are going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. So it's just better to, to run the business like a business. Right. And not make income tax minimization the overriding goal every year, even though that is important. And, and of course, a lot of these te- technical startups, I, I think they almost immediately have this conversation at the outset that, you know, as soon as we get this thing on the ground, on the ground running a little bit, we'll, you know, s- sell it to a larger entity, I guess in, in, in biotech too, because obviously they can scale it or mm-hmm. have the funds to really patent, you know, take their patented idea or their, their enterprise that they've thought of and it folded into their enterprise. Right. And that's, right. that happens a lot in the, I think in technical and biotech a, as well. But here's a funny story about tax bias. So I have a client who was looking to buy a restaurant, and they said, well, here's, here's the price that the, the seller wants, and, and here's what the cash flow is. And I said, they're nuts. I said, I said it's not even close to what the value. And, and, and the potential buyer goes, yeah, but then the seller told me about all the cash transactions that don't wind up on the income tax. <laughs> oh. I said, just say no and go in the other direction. I said, because you can't trust anything the mm-hmm. seller's saying at this point, yeah. which is true, you can't. I mean, I can't believe that people do that (laughs) and then expect to be able to sell it based on what is real, quote, unquote. And and what's ironic is usually that that business is the the most valuable asset in the estate of the the business owner. Right. And they don't treat it like that. And that's one thing that uh, a lot of these small businesses uh, that have operated, like uh, Richard just said, they run into the issue of uh, running a lot of personal items or, and or mm-hmm. unnecessary business items through mm-hmm. uh, the financial statements. And when they go through the due diligence process, which any um, viable buyer will do, uh, that's when they run into those issues of, okay, they're going to discount so many different things because of um, the items that have been running through the financial statements. Yeah, I know one restaurant owner, <laughs> he was leasing the space. He actually had the audacity to, add, you know, Ask, his asking price is $400,000 for a business that was losing money. And uh, we said, no, thanks. We'll just wait till you, until, until, until you, yeah, until you yeah. collapse. And, and uh, basically got the space. He just had a, he was gone. He didn't get anything. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. That's but true. you can't fault them for trying. But, but Don, you make a good point. A lot of businesses start because it's somebody's dream or it just evolved out of something somebody was passionate about without any real forethought about, hey, I'm going to have a business. And, and when that happens, I think income tax is a motivation because you're trying to keep your hands on working capital so you don't want to give it away to the government with income tax payments. But, um, but I know a lot of businesses just, the joke is if it worked out, it must have been a plan. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, I think well, Paul was talking about earlier too the idea of some of these uh, business startups. You really do need to have a uh, a life plan for the business, uh, whether it's a five year, ten year, twenty year plan, and then the idea of getting the appropriate team uh, in place when you do arrive at that maybe three to five year stage before you want to sell the business. It's important to get. Uh, investment banker, attorney, CPAs, mm-hmm. uh, wealth manager, all these people on board so that the client, a business owner, is actually uh, served well by all of those parties. Anyway, we're coming up on a break. We're going to be back with Polito and Epic right after these words. Hang on. All right, we're back with the award-winning It's Your Money and Your Life, and this is the time where Richard likes to thank our sponsors. Yes, I do. UBS, Michael Caronta could not do this show without UBS. Also, we've got two groups of great CPAs. Of course, you're listening to Plato Epic CPAs, great firm up in San Marcos. Financial statements, tax returns, and, of course, beyond the balance sheet, all of the forward-looking things that business owners really, really need. Also, if you're looking for a temporary CFO, Jason Kruger, Signature Analytics, regional firm, that provides CFO services, and that's all that they do. Our great friend Joel Grushkin, Cost Segregation Initiatives. We were talking about accelerated depreciation. Well, if you're a real estate owner and you want to get better cash flow with some extra depreciation up front, Joel Grushkin, Cost Segregation Initiatives, helping real estate owners improve their cash flow. Sean Puckett, of course, Mechanics Bank, formerly known as California Republic Bank. Sean is the regional VP here of the San Diego office located in UTC. Mechanics Bank works with wealthy families and families that operate in the real estate space. Also, we had mentioned earlier in the show, I've got some great continuing education coming up at La Costa, the Omni La Costa Spa and Resort. It is, let me think about the dates, June 19th, 20th, and 21st, the LG Experience in the Lombardi Group, helping wealth advisors make heroes out of CPAs, which are the very best clients. But for CPAs out there, it qualifies for 24 hours continuing education at a great price. Great food, great location, Omni La Costa. Also, our great friend, Paul Hines. <coughs> Paul, of course, is the founder of Hearthstone Private Wealth Management and as well, he is the catalyst behind SeniorSafeAndSound.org here in San Diego, helping to prevent the financial abuse of the elderly. Also, Brenda Geiger, estate planning attorney. Brenda also does a great job with asset protection, and she, of course, just had a great continuing education event over at Loma Santa Fe Country Club. Um, about asset protection and the future of estate planning. Our great friend also, Michelle St. Clair with Elite Lifestyle Management. Michelle, of course, was a finalist for a Malin Burnham Award from Christopher Yanoff's Reality Changers. Came in third, I think, out of 19 companies. Hmm. But there was no bronze medal. It was winner, ta- winner, winner take all. By the way, my foundation, Move Your Feet Before You Eat Foundation, came in second to the San Diego Foundation. Congratulations to them. Um, I find it interesting that the San Diego Foundation also donated $512,000, and I did not. So that may have had something to do with the results, but they're still a great foundation. But you get to vote every day. I bet your finger's sore, right, Richard? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But we came in second. Okay. Just $513,000 short. How many laptops did you burn through? (laughs) (laughs) We kicked Rancho Santa Fe Foundation's butt on voting. But anyway. So congratulations to Michelle and to Kathy Kinane from the Move Your Feet Before You Eat Foundation. 
And last but not least, Joe, I'm getting hungry because I'm missing dinner while I'm listening to this show. What can I do? Well, there's the Great Food of the Berry Good Food Foundation. They have their annual Berry Good Night Dinner. It's going to be in September this year, and I can't wait for that. And, of course, they do a few other good shows with us throughout the year about foodie topics and uh, sustainability. Great work with Michelle Ciccarelli Lirac. And also there's the Lestat's Coffee Houses, the original Normal Heights and uh, University Heights, and now a new one on Hillcrest, and they're open 24-7, 365 doing fantastically well. They Speaking of accounting, I mean, usually these businesses, you know, make it or break it in the first year. I mean, they psh, what they've done in six months and their third one is, is, is unreal. All, there's, there's always a line at the counter. I, I just I, It blows me away. I don't know where these people come from. But That's like the old Yogi Berra line. Nobody goes there anymore because it's so yeah. busy. You can't get in. <laughs> I mean, like the one in University Heights, you sit there. The, the place, there's not a seat in the place, and yet there's like seven people at the counter, uh, you know, throughout the that. day. I just don't it's know how they stuff. do it. Yeah. Good, it's good folks. Anyway, there's a, if you go to iymoney.com, there's a drop-down menu there. If you go to the Sponsors tab, I know many have been working with Richard for, with great success for many, many years, right, Richard? Well, yeah, we've, we've announced uh, overtly and publicly that Paul Polito and I have been doing business together since 1989. Yeah. That, that was, did we have, I mean, that was before 2000. I can't even remember 1989. Well, like you say, it's all about say. collaboration, relationships, integrity, and, and you know, building up uh, clientele throughout the years, you know, it's all about re- reputation, right? Yeah, absolutely. So. But hey, one of our former sponsors who occasionally still sponsors, Carl Sheeler, wrote a great book called Equity Value Enhancement, best mm-hmm. forward ever written in the history of business valuation, because I wrote it for <laughs> Wiley and Sons. You're paying but it forward. Paying it forward, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's got a lot of these concepts that Paul is talking about. But uh, what fascinates me, Paul, in terms of the work that you do, in terms of helping companies get ready for sale, there's all kinds of things that they don't really think about. But one of the most interesting to me is the fact that so much has rested on the shoulders of the founder or the founders. They typically are way, way behind in terms of actually bringing in talented people and management teams, correct? Correct. And, and when, when, when let, let's assume that I say, you know, I've got this really successful business and I want to sell it in five years. How soon do you have to really have strong management in there before you do that? I mean, it's got to be well before, right? Five years is probably minimum. Yeah, minimum, right. Because you need to put a good management team together. Whoever buys the business is going to want it to be uh, running without you. And it's going to have to run for a while without you because uh, you don't want to have goodwill attached to yourself. Because if you have goodwill attached to yourself, it's going to lower your your selling price. I remember hearing uh, once upon a time about, you, you remember Sealy, uh, the mattress companies, oh, Sealy yeah. and, and then Serta, the two biggies. But I guess they both, and a lot of companies, I'd like to get your opinions on this, but the old leverage buyout or the private equity uh, you know, method where the, uh, you know, they take on a lot of debt and, and the, uh, the founders make a lot of money, but then the company gets badly managed or in, in light of that, they have to sell off a lot of assets and and whatever. And, and Mitt and, Romney makes a few more bucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, is that always a good idea to, to try to, to, to go about it that way, or are there other better ways that they can consider? Well, Dep- I'll rephrase the question. The use of debt with regard to getting, or the non-use of debt in some cases, with regard to getting a company ready for sale. What are your thoughts on that? Because I find that a lot of companies don't access really low-priced debt because they just have a straight aversion to any debt at all. And then, of course, Paul's talking about the other side of the coin where people just go nuts and over-leverage. Yeah. But do but, uh, you guys run into companies that where, where the owner is simply adverse to debt? Certainly, uh, especially if they've uh, 
been victims of a, of a roller coaster economy and it's really affected their business and they've been caught in debt without mm-hmm. uh, the cash flow to service it. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, I don't see it too often as a, as a partial means of getting cash out of the company, but mm-hmm. if you're going to do an asset sale, that's probably not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It makes it, e- it 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 makes it easier for the buyer because the buyer's not going to have to pay as much. You probably see it with smaller companies where there isn't a lot of enterprise value, uh, where it's mostly uh, they're buying cash flow. So enterprise value is more of what the the trade the, the the goodwill of the name or the right. If you've got a professionally managed company with a with a good professional management team, and uh, a a good product line or a good service offering that has uh, longevity and you have a good brand, then you have an enterprise to sell, and you're going to get a multiple of your EBITDA. But if you're just basically making a living and a little bit more, then you mm-hmm. got a business to sell, mm-hmm. and it's probably not going to, it's not going to get multiples of EBITDA. It's going to get a little, it, it's going to get a price something like maybe three times cash flow. Mm. Of course, in this county, we have WD-40, which has a reputation of never taking on debt. They're a global company, aren't they? They're pretty successful. Yes. Yeah. Hopefully. San Marcos, aren't they? Uh, well, I think they I think were. Right. They were. They well, were. maybe it's where the, the manufacturer, I know the offices are down by uh, Tommy Gomes's place, uh, Lovelock, near USD, actually. Yeah. That's right, near there. USD. Um, I don't know if that's where they make uh, the product. Maybe they have other, other plants or whatnot, but... And Dr. Bronner's soaps, we've had those guys. Oh, Dr. Bronner's soaps. They were, <laughs> by the way, they were up at the Vista Strawberry Fest. Aren't they great? They're a lot this, of fun. I hope they never sell. This company went from $4 million in 98 when the grandfather passed to $100 million now. Wow. Isn't that something? Yeah. Did you guys know they were I had no idea they were that no. successful. No. But um, I think that's a whole, you know, the Internet helping them out as well. Um, but, yeah, they've. And the, and the additional product lines they came up with. They have toothpaste now, for God's yeah. sake. Yeah, their books and records are clean. That was an accounting. Yes. Though. But anyway. Interesting <laughs> stuff. Anyway, we'll be back with Polito and Epic and all this great business information and accounting information right after these words. All right, we're back with Don Epic and Paul Polito. Polito and Epic, the Epic CPA firm in San Diego County. Remember Beyond my mo- the balance sheet. Mem- remember, that, remember that motto I gave you guys? Polite service with epic results. I That's think it. you... <laughs> yeah. yeah. You demand. I know that. <laughs> so Paul, Richard Paul, Thank you, Joe. You, you're welcome. Paul, Paul, Paul or Don, so companies that are getting ready for sale, people sometimes laugh and say, well, why should I have a vision statement or a mission statement or a statement of my purpose? How important is that? Well, it's part of the enterprise value, Richard. It's it's if you don't know what you are, why you exist, why would someone want to buy you? Right. I use the word culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, how how do you measure culture against what? Culture is a hard thing to measure. Yeah. It's it uh, it would probably be measured in uh, customer loyalty, low turnover of employees, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Although when we had Erwin Jacobs on, I, I mean, if you've got a superior technical technological breakthrough or something, because he actually sat here and said, we really didn't have a plan. We just knew we had a good idea, you know. But uh, if, you, if you're if you lucky enough to get to, to develop something that, you know, a ton of, a ton of people are going to want, like a cell phone, you know. But actually, he took a, an interesting, and I don't even know if they anticipated this, but they were in the cell phone manufacturing business initially, and then... They got the bright idea. I think some lawyer, who I think became an executive in the firm, said, "You know, we really should just license the technology." So that's what they did, and they just. But they had, 
remember I walked in the they have 11 at least 11,000 patents I mean mm-hmm. the blow <laughs> yeah and I don't know when they if they started out if they said someday we're gonna have we just could do the whole IP route and everything but I, I think that you know sometimes you just you know you can develop as you go along but it's probably not the the ideal situation and and, and they they got lucky I guess right that's that's one of the uh, real advantages of a good uh, cost accounting system because what will invariably happen is your margins, when you make something, someone else is going to make it. They're going to cut corners. They're going to lower the perceived value in the marketplace, and the margins are going to get skinnier and skinnier. And you stand back and you say, well, what do I, what's my real contribution to this industry? Mm-hmm. It's the know-how. It's the IP. Yeah. And then, then you say, well, I could lose all this overhead and all this manufacturing headache and, and everything that goes along with it if I just license the technology to someone else that likes to manufacture. And then, of course, the valuation uh, model and difficulty kicks in at that point because now how do you value you know, a piece of intellectual but, property? But backing up, do, don't a lot of companies do a rather poor job of, shall we say, protecting and documenting their IP? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I've got a I've got a real good example of a client uh, that never never really uh, protected their technology, uh, got knocked off by a few competitors, and now their number one product that they always made money on is almost a money loser because mm-hmm. foreign uh, competition has driven the market value of their product down so low mm-hmm. that they can't really make money selling it anymore. Mm-hmm. That's the other the other wrinkle in this. We've gone so global now with business. I mean, you have to consider that from day one. You know, what's going to be the global impact, whether it's manufacturing or whatever, right? Yeah, and even if you protect it here, it doesn't mean that people are going to honor that overseas. Yeah, that yeah, happens. That's very true. Yeah. Anyway, interesting. Um, where'd you, what else, Richard? You want to cover? In the, in well, I want to talk. I want to talk about something really boring, but I don't see it being done often enough. Keeping keeping um, good corporate records and compliance uh, minutes and, and other evidences of decisions that have been made along the path. Do, do you find a lot of companies are challenged by that history piece? Usually, uh, small businesses do a very bad job of maintaining uh, minutes. But what it does, uh, what that piece does, is it shows that management's thoughtful and. Mm-hmm. Um, intentional about the way they're running the company. Mm-hmm. And anyone coming in to buy is going to want to see that. And I like, to, I like to treat the companies that I'm helping actually get ready for sale as if they're going to be acquired by a public company. And if they're going to be acquired by a public company, legal is going to go through it, uh, the auditors are going to go through it, everybody's going to go through it, and it needs to stand up to that kind of scrutiny. And so for that reason... Uh, a lot of times we'll recommend that companies get re- minimum full disclosure uh, financial statements, usually a review or an audit, so that all of that stuff gets flushed out well in advance before the, before the company's put on the market. Hmm. And it's much easier for an investment banker to sell a company with audited financial statements for the prior three years than it is without. Now, you had one bullet item about lose your tax bias. What does that mean? We talked about that a little bit earlier in the show, about how some small companies expense everything under the sun, and they only care about minimizing income tax. And so it makes it a difficult story to tell when you're trying to sell. Because you're saying, well, I really made a lot more than my tax return show, (laughs) which I signed under penalty of perjury. Right. In other words, honesty. You know, if if you got something that's worth something, you, you... 
you should stand behind it, and mm-hmm. you should be able to stand behind it with the truth. Yeah. I, I, that would because be a, it's going to be examined. That would be a red flag, wouldn't it? I mean, to, if you're, <laughs> to the seller, if this guy said, I made a lot more money, but it's, where is it, you know? <laughs> and to that, yeah, to that point, uh, you're most likely going to increase the purchase price if you are working with honest and true numbers as mm-hmm. opposed to a discounted number. And like Paul said, uh, a buyer is not going to want to deal with uh, having three years of audited financial statements done in arrears they want it uh, done as time progresses. Uh-huh. Gotcha. So can I ask you guys a theoretical question about financial statements? Now that we've moved into this age of so much value being captured in, shall we say, the intellectual piece as opposed to the old-fashioned days of you know, plant and equipment and inventory, do, do you think that financial statements can be made more relevant if we were able to, shall we say, make more disclosure about for example, the value of things as opposed to merely their historical cost? Yeah, that's the IFRS uh, uh, position. Yeah, what Don means by IFRS is in terms of how we report in this country versus what gets reported, for example, in European countries in general. Mm -hmm. What what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, uh, well, that's what you'd want to see when you're selling the company. Mm -hmm. Everyone's going to be putting items at fair market value. Right. Uh, That's what they'll do is they'll go through the balance sheet. Uh, identify what inventory is, what's the actual fair market value of that inventory. If there's scrap or it's obsolete, it's not of any value. And a buyer is going to want to be buying assets, most likely, as opposed to buying stock in the company. For example, what is the goodwill worth? You'll see balance sheets where goodwill literally is zero in terms of its cost basis, Mm -hmm. yet there's huge enterprise value. And in other companies, uh, there's very little plant and equipment, mm-hmm. and uh, what is actually being uh, purchased is goodwill. Right. In some cases, it's the only thing that's being purchased. That's right. Well, speaking of enterp- building enterprise value, the firm of Polito Epic, I'm looking at the website, and folks, if you're interested, it's P-O-L-I-T-O, and then Epic is interesting, so E-P-P-I-C-H, that's German, right, Don? Correct. And, uh, but really nice-looking website, and you have a new office building, and I'm looking at your team. You've got a pretty big team here, right? Yeah, we have. Uh, 14 professionals. At yeah, this time. got an audit team, a tax team, bookkeeping, an administrative team. All right. You guys let the auditors and the tax people mingle? Uh, on occasions, Absolutely. Yeah, at parties. <laughs> 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 now, why do you ask that question, Richard? What? Well, because the tax people can get really stressed at certain times of the year. Uh-huh. I was just wondering. Yeah, um, but... Uh, Interesting, but nice-looking crew there and a nice-looking website, and uh, you folks should, uh, if you have some, some accounting needs or consultation needs, they're certainly there. Um, so it's, it's about business growth, too. Now, Joel Greshkin's another good friend. Do you guys know him at all? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, another Sharpie. See, these guys all collaborate. I, now, I, now I understand the well, sponsor. Well, Don, Don made the point earlier. It's, it's not only what you know as a professional. It's also who you know. So, Don, you were mentioning sometimes you need to bring in other people to have a really solid team, right? Right. Yeah, you're only doing the client, uh, you know, their best service uh, by surrounding them with, uh, you know, th- that special team of advisors that uh, specialize in those given areas. So you gents moved. You're up on San Marcos Boulevard, right? How do you like it up there? It's a booming area, isn't it? I love and it. It's two miles the, from my house. <laughs> <laughs> the university's booming. I mean, it's really taking off up mm-hmm. there. It's, uh, um, it's a good place to be. Yeah, it's great that you live close by so you don't have to commute too, too far because North County traffic, as you know, is getting, <laughs> a little, traffic? It's getting busy. 
Anyway, Paul Polito, Don Epic, Thanks, C- gents. CPAs, three CPAs extraordinary in here tonight. And Richard Musio, great seeing you. Justin Hart, our board operator, thanks for making it sound terrific. Thanks to Craig Blanke, our con executive, and to Dave Sniff here at KFMB. All these podcasts are commercial-free on iymoney.com. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.